Quick question for you. Are you a Federal Access member yet? If you're a government contractor, you need a Federal Access account. You can get started today with a free membership. Just visit federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Free members get access to about 20 documents and templates as well as our video training playbooks. More importantly, this gets you in the RSM Federal ecosystem and makes you part of our community. So go grab your free account today at federal-access.com forward slash game changers. Now let's hop into this episode. Welcome to Game Changers for Government Contractors. Game Changers is dedicated to helping you position for and win more government contracts. And now your hosts, Josh and Mike. Hey everybody, Michael Lejeune here, your host for Game Changers. And I want to welcome you to this episode. I think it's going to be really cool. We're going to dive into a topic we have not talked about probably ever on the show. I think we we may have like mentioned that this exists, but we've never really drilled down into this topic today. And so I'm really excited for our special guest. Uh, His name is Matt Miller. Uh, Matt, why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners? Certainly. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the uh, the program, Michael. Uh, So my background, I grew up here in uh, central Illinois, uh, down in uh, Teutopolis, Illinois, I went to uh, school at Eastern Illinois, University of Illinois, and then uh, uh, earned a degree in uh, electrical engineering and uh, went out to Seattle for grad school, went to grad school at University of Washington and uh, had my first job with the Boeing company out there. So I worked for Boeing for about three years on space and defense programs, and my specialty was electromagnetics. So looking at antennas and radars and how they perform under a a wide variety of conditions. And moved back to Illinois to Champaign in 2001. I went to work for a defense contractor there. Uh, At the time, they were called SAIC, Science Science Applications International Corporation. And I worked there for about four years. And that's where I first got exposed to the SBIR program and writing proposals and whatnot. Uh, and then in 2005, I ventured out and started my first company. And in 2006, we merged that company into a, a new entity uh, with a uh, business partner. Uh, and that company was called Dell Cross Technologies. And we grew Dell Cross from uh, really from two people up to about 20 people over the course of about 10 years. And then in 2015, we sold Dell Cross uh, to a large publicly traded company. And uh, and since then, I've uh, been doing various things, and uh, including opening a, a brewery uh, and brew pub here in Monticello. Yeah, and you know, I think that's one of the the things that got me really interested in in this topic when I sat through some of the business boot camps here locally, and you were talking about going through the SBIRs, and I think you mentioned that over the course of your company, you guys won something like twenty million. And I say one loosely, but you guys won like $20 million plus in SBIRs. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. The uh, the SBIR program was really critical for our company making it in the first few years. And then as, as the company grew, uh, it was just a really nice source of supplemental income. Yeah. And I, I think SBIRs are great. And we, we did a much smaller amount in some of my previous companies, but I, I had uh, been exposed to the SBIR program myself. And I thought this would be a really great topic for a, a lot of our listeners in government, because it's, it's an area where I think 
it, it sounds really sexy, but a lot of people don't know how to go about it. And so I thought it'd be great, you know, to, for them to listen to somebody who's done so well in that particular area. And, you know, if you happen to be in the Monticello area, you should stop by the Monarch Brew Pub. I was just talking to Matt earlier about being there on Friday night, and uh, we had some of that raspberry beer uh, by the way, I don't know uh, if people have had that before, but Matt, it was really, really good. Uh, I had my doubts about a raspberry beer, but that was really, really good stuff. So, uh, and that's one of your specialties that you guys are brewing on limited uh, selection right now, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks for that feedback. I'm, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where it sounds good, but you don't really know what to do. And then you get it and you're like, wow, this is better than I thought it would be. So, so yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, it was really, really good. So anyway, um, so yeah, the success kind of bleeds over. And it's interesting how a lot of times when I talk to people who have been successful running their own government companies, a lot of those folks have a similar background to you where you were an employee in a, a defense contractor, you worked for a big, uh, you know, systems integrator is how we, we typically call those. And then you venture out on your own and you reach some success. And so I think there, there's some underlying, you know, trails there that people can follow to find their own success in this. If you've never been in those big companies, I do think you learn a lot and you see a lot of what's going on that you don't get when you just start your own company. And so I don't know how you feel about that before we jump into the topic. I mean, do you, do you feel like that really helped your success in defense contracting? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, I think we see, uh, you read the headlines about these, uh, young 20 somethings that go out and start a dot com and make a, a ton of money. And, you know, those, those situations certainly happen. Uh, but for the most part, most people are going to go work for someone else, work for a large company. And that's, that's kind of where you cut your teeth and you learn the process and you learn, you know, what the customers are looking for and how to talk to the customers and what's, how, do, how do you create value for these people? Because your customers are very busy, very important people. And, you know, you have to create value for them. And that's something that I, I think a lot of people, they have this great idea and it's going, oh, they're going to make a ton of money on it. But will you? I mean, you only make money on that idea if you're creating value for someone else. Damn. And and that's that's a lesson you learn when you work for uh, for someone else. Yeah, and you know, and it's it's a different environment when you work for something else or someone else. You know, when you're working for yourself, you're trying to figure out how do I pay the mortgage, how do I you know create value for myself almost. I mean, you're trying to do good things for people, but when when you're living off of that as your only source of income, it, you have a different mindset than when you're working for somebody else and your job is, oh, I get to go in and try to create value for my for my customers. You know, it's a different mind. You're not worried about your check depositing on Friday because, you know, it's a big company, your check's going to deposit on Friday. It's just a very different atmosphere. And so I, I think there's just a lot of benefits that people look at. Like you said, a lot of the 20-somethings just blow through it. There's even like 14-year-olds now, you know, doing their dot-com thing and blowing through this. And, and they just, they miss out on a lot of stuff. So uh, I'm glad you talked about that here for a minute. So today we're going to be diving into SBIRs and I thought it would be great if we would just kind of start off with, you know, you describing the program and how it works, you know, in just in general. Yeah, certainly. So the, the SBIR stands for small business innovation research, and these are contracts uh, typically from a government organization. Um, most of the time I worked with the Department of Defense, 
but other agencies like the NIH or National Science Foundation, um, USDA, et cetera, et cetera, uh, most of these large government organizations will issue SBIR uh, solicitations and then eventually contracts. And so the way it works is about usually about three times a year, they will release a round of solicitations. And those solicitations will describe a problem that the government is trying to solve. And they'll talk about some of the challenges associated with it and some of the ideas that have been tried in the past that didn't work and, and what they're looking for in their solution or the, the intended solution. And so then as, as a small business, um, these again, they come out about three times a year. And when they come out, we would go through and we would just scour the topics and we would look for anything that was in, in our wheelhouse. You know, we, we didn't want to stretch and try to go after something that was kind of, you know, well, we kind of know something about that, but it's not really, you know, our expertise. And so then we would find hopefully two or three topics per round. And you then reach out to the what's called a TPOC, a technical point of contact. And the best thing to do is to get on the phone with them and talk through, or if you can get FaceTime with them, even better. Um, but to, to talk through things with them, because sometimes, you know, maybe what they have in their head isn't exactly what they got into that solicitation. And so, or maybe something's changed because, you know, it can take sometimes over a year from the time they issue that solicitation to their office before it gets turned, before it shows up on the street. And so sometimes things change. Um, so you go through that process and then you submit a phase one proposal. And a phase one proposal is typically depends on the agency, but 20, 25 pages. And you're talking about how you're going to solve that problem. So if they like your proposal, they'll, they'll make an award to you. And they typically make two or three awards because, you know, one, it's good to have competition and some of these ideas from the different companies, they may just not pan out. And so then after the round one, which is typically six to 12 months, depending upon the agency, uh, they will then select a phase two. You have to submit a, a proposal. You'll get invited to su submit a proposal. And then if they like your phase two proposal, then you'll get a larger contract. And uh, I, I think that's, I didn't, I didn't touch on that, but the phase one award is typically a relatively small amount of money, uh, somewhere from 60 to $100,000. And then the phase two is where there's substantially more money. Uh, now you're looking at usually between half a million to a million dollars. So, so that's, that's generally how the process flows. And then there are additional contracts. There are phase 2.5 contracts for the Navy, for example, and phase three contracts, uh, which are, are typically much more difficult to win, but they can be very, very lucrative. And I, I think that's that's a really good outline for how it works. You know, we we did that, and we, we took a, a little bit different approach. We were already working with the Air Force on a couple of different projects, and they said, hey, we, we have a problem with the software you developed, and we want you to create some innovative solutions around it. And we actually used this SBIR tool to say, well, hey, why don't you go write an SBIR for that? 
you know, and, and, and fund the development. And so that was something that happened with us back in the day. They wound up funding it, like you said, in the phase one, phase two, and so on, uh, to, to kind of get our software where they wanted it back in the day. So I, I think a lot of people listening to this are saying, well, you know, what types of, you know, things happen in this, you know, what type of, you know, is it mostly software? Is it mostly, what kind of problems are they having? I think it might help shed a little bit of light on that for you to tell us what type of company you were running. Uh, and then, you know, what type of specific technology or products you were developing on the back end for them based on these SBIRs. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, just to, to build on something you were saying there with your, your air force example, I, and I think that's a, that's a brilliant approach and it's one that we used, uh, almost all the time, actually, um, is you sit down with the customer, you develop these relationships, and then you sit down with them and say, what are your hard problems? What are you trying to solve? What's, what keeps you up at night? And then, you know, as a small company, you can throw out some different ideas to them and try to kind of seed those ideas and try to guide them into turning them into solicitations that eventually hit the street, and then you can go after them. That's, And of course, if you go through that process, your chances of getting at least a phase one award are much, much better than if you just go into a cold. Mm, yes. So in, in terms of my company, um, well, I had uh, three business partners, so our company, um, we developed simulation software, and we were simulating different types of electromagnetic effects. And so uh, it was primarily three areas. So we would simulate how antennas performed when they were mounted onto platforms. And so that platform could be a satellite, it could be a ship, it could be an airplane, it uh, doesn't really matter. Um, but the way that the antenna interacts with that platform changes the way that it radiates energy into space. And so we could simulate the physics involved in that type of problem. Um, the second type of problem was radio frequency interference. And so this is, you know, like, I don't, not so much anymore, but as recently as probably five or six years ago, when you would get on an airplane, they would tell you to turn off your cell phones. Mm -hmm. And their concern there was that the emissions from your cell phone would interfere with the communication and navigation systems of the aircraft. And so that, that's one example of a, of a problem that the military and even nowadays commercial companies are very, very concerned about. Um, even your cell phone today, your cell phone has probably somewhere between five to 10 antennas in it for, you know, Bluetooth, wireless comms, GPS, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can't have these, these different RF systems interfering with one another. So we had a, we had a, a software product that would predict when interference would occur between those systems. And then the last product was for radar signature prediction. So when we have a, uh, a fighter pilot, for example, and he turns on his radar, it sends out a pulse of energy into space, and that, that energy bounces off of other aircraft, ground vehicles, whatever it may be, and it reflects back to the, the radar that radiated it. Well, we had software tools that would predict very, very accurately what those radar signatures would look like. And so then you can do all kinds of things when you know what the scattering looks like for different targets. Um, so th those were the three primary areas. Um, most of our customers were in the defense sector, but towards the end of my company, 
we were getting a lot of interest from the automotive radar and self-driving vehicle uh, community because our simulation tools were really well suited for what they were trying to, to solve. Yeah, and those are, like you said, those are some pretty complex problems. And it always baffles people or used to when they get on planes and they'd say shut off your cell phones. You're like, how's my cell phone going to cause interference? Because I don't think people really understood the the computing power and the antennas and even when you were saying how many antennas i'm like i think it only has one and then you start listing them i'm like no yeah it has that one and that one and that one and that one and those are all doing their own things and so it's it's a complicated challenge that the government has so how do we fix it well we fix it with some company coming in and i like how you started this you know coming in and asking what are your hard problems what are the things that keep you up at night? And that is actually something that is a trend. I think everybody who's ever been on one of our podcasts says something super simple like that, that most companies just won't do. Like most companies won't go in to their clients and say, we just want to learn what your problems are and how simple that is. Yet that is so effective to come in and ask them genuinely, not what can I sell to you? What of you know? What on my sales sheet are you buying? But what problems are you having that we could probably solve for you? You know, or at least we could put on our radar. You know, not to to use the slang there, but you know, to put on our radar to actually solve for you long term. So I I think a lot of people when they think back on winning a contract, it's really simple to understand the benefits. Hey, our company's going to grow. Our company's going to have cash flow, all good stuff. What are some of the challenges to winning an SBR type, SBIR type of contract? Because this is a little different than just a regular contract. Yeah, for, for sure. And, uh, you know, again, going back to your, your Air Force example, I mean, if, if you go, if you approach a, a solicitation, so it comes out and you're reading it, and the first time that you're reading it is the day that it got released your chances of winning that contract are significantly less than if you had cultivated that idea with the customer and got them to issue that solicitation for you. So that that's probably my number one recommendation is build relationships and try it. And it, there's a long lead time on this. I mean, it can be anywhere from 12 to 18 months from the time you sit down with a customer and talk about ideas until they get issued as a solicitation. But, you know, if you're if you're patient and you're able to wait that long, that is definitely the way to go. Um, the, the another big challenge with the SBIR contracts. Now, maybe, maybe it's a, I don't want to characterize this in the wrong light, but um, so when you win a phase two SBIR contract, you then have to have an accounting system that is approved by the defense contract audit agency. And. It's, it can be a bit of an onerous thing to get your accounting system approved for, uh, for that agency because uh, they have a lot of requirements on separating and tracking costs that are direct versus indirect. And uh, it can very quickly become some, something quite complicated. So that, that's not so much a challenge of winning the contracts, but it's, it's definitely something to keep in mind if you're going to be pursuing uh, SBIR contracts or other types of defense contracts is you, you have to make an investment not just in buying a piece of software, but understanding the accounting requirements of the government. Yeah, but, no, that, that's a big one, yeah. Yeah, but fortunately there are companies out there that can help. Uh, 
with those sort of things. I had a, a CFO that was great at, at taking care of all that for us. Um, I think some of the other challenges is just really kind of understanding the, um, like you have to go in and read the proposal format requirements and make sure that you really understand what they're looking for in each section because they can throw out your proposal if you didn't, you know, there's a, there's a standard format and if you didn't fill it out completely or you didn't fill it out correctly, they can very easily just say, okay, we're going to disqualify this one. doesn't meet the criteria. Um, there's very strict submission deadlines and ways to submit your proposals. And, and some of these requirements change. I know over the 10 years that we were submitting them, the requirements changed, uh, dates changed, things like that. So you, re you really got to stay on top of all that. And even if you've written, you know, hundreds of SBIR proposals, when the solicitations come out, the first thing you should do is read the requirements because they may have changed. So, so those are kind of the, some that uh, some of the challenges that I think of um, off the top of my head. I think I think a common mistake that people make when they write these proposals is they spend too much time talking about what they've done in the past. You know, they're trying to impress the their audience that they they understand the subject matter and that they've got all these great credentials, which is important. But they spend too much time on that. And they, they don't spend enough time explaining how they're going to solve the problem. So I've, I've seen proposals that were 90% about what we did in the past and 10% about what we're going to do to solve your problem. It really should be the inverse of that. Keep, keep your resume relatively short, put in the salient information, but then really focus on step-by-step -step demonstrate to the customer that you know how to solve this problem. Um, I, I think that's a very common mistake that uh, uh, that folks make when they write these. Yeah, no, I, I see that all the time. So those, those are great things to point out to people. And and again, you know, you're talking about how are you going to solve their problem? They, they they if they need more info on your bio or your resume, like you said, they'll usually ask for that sort of thing at some point. And if you're working with the customer and you're developing the relationship, they're going to know some of these things and. You're not going to have to write, you know, six paragraphs on something that really only needs one because they know about the time you worked with XYZ company and they get that. So you can you can remind them without having to spell it out and suck up valuable resources in that proposal. So all really, really good tips there. So, you know, when and, and I know you, you've kind of covered a little bit all over the map here on the SBIRs, but if I wanted to go learn about the SBIRs, where would you send me first to learn about those? So a couple of different places. Um, there's a federal business opportunities website called FedBizOps uh, that has, I believe, all solicitations uh, and RFPs and RFIs and things like that that the, uh, the government issues. And then there are SBIR websites for the different agencies. I know Department of Defense has one central website. I forget the uh, the address right now. But if you do a, a Google search and just type in DOD SBIR, uh, it'll, it'll quickly bring up those types of websites. There are also forums that you can go to and conferences around the country. Um, I, they're all over the place in the Midwest, East and West Coast. And those, those can be useful. Um, I guess one um, caution I would put out is 
there are some companies that will um, try to, you know, basically say they're going to do everything for you in the SBIR process, and and they can be they can be very helpful. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're if you're trying to write a proposal for your technology, you need to be involved in the process at, at least to a certain extent. You can't just hand it off to somebody else and, and expect them to do it for you. Um, you can get help, and, and and sometimes that help is you know really takes you a long ways. Um, but at the end of the day, you still have to be involved in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've had a lot of people say, should I hire a consultant or a proposal person or a specialist in this area? And a lot of times my answer is actually no, you, you probably shouldn't. However, I do think it's great to maybe hire them on the first time or the second or, you know, once or twice to kind of understand what's going on. Cause you will learn a lot from these consultants, but then, like you said, you know, at some point you've got to bring this stuff in house. You have to be involved no matter what level, even if you hire a consultant, they're going to have six pages of questions for you uh, just so they can understand what your business model even is and how you can solve the problem. Cause they, they can't do that on their own. Right. So you, you sure. have to, you have to have them involved, you know, both sides, you and the consultant, but at some point you should be able to take it in house and move on from there. So it can be a really good investment short term to kind of get up to speed on, on what's going on. So I think my last question for you here is given the fact that this is government funded research and development, right? Uh, in terms of intellectual property that's developed through the SBIR contract, what's important to keep in mind when you're not only doing the actual work, but when you're like writing the proposals, when you're marking up deliverables, that sort of thing, what, what do you need to keep in mind about the intellectual property side of things? Yeah, no, it's, it, that's a really great point because, uh, one of the, one of the objectives from the SBIR program is for the small company to develop intellectual property and then take that intellectual property and go out and commercialize it, that they want you to do that. And so the government gets certain rights. They get certain limited rights in the data that you're producing. Um, but you have to be careful because you, have to, you need to go in in your proposal and you have to identify what your deliverables are. And so, for example, for a software company like we were, we would always state that our deliverables were the executables, not the source code. Hmm. And so the big difference there is with the source code, the government at some point could say they would get a full – I forget the, the term for it right now, but they would basically get full rights to that source code. And in theory – I don't think they would probably ever do this, but in theory – they could take that source code and compile it and go out and offer that product for free to anybody. Um, again, I think it's highly unlikely, but you don't know. And right, you, right. You, want, you want to protect your assets. And so a couple of things. So in our deliverables, we very clearly state our deliverable is the executable and supporting documentation. And then – um, you need to mark all your deliverables clearly that we're delivering this to you under the SBIR program with such and such um, rights for the government to use them. So you, you have to – you obviously have to give something to the government. That's what they're paying you for. But at the same time, you have to protect the intellectual property that you want to go off and commercialize. Um, another little thing that we learned with software is – 
you know, the government's paying you to develop a product, but you can go off and you can supplement that development. So you can pay for part of the development yourself with IR&D funds. And now you've got a software program that is a mixture of software that the government paid for and software that you paid for internally. And very often that source code is not separable. And so at that point, you've got a product that's a mixture of government-funded and, and self-funded software. And so if, if, say, you didn't mark things properly, if the government came back and demanded source code, well, you know, I don't know that line 2870 I wrote or if you paid for, for me to write that. Right. Um, so it's yet another way to, to protect yourself. Uh, is to do some self-funded development and intermix it with the government-funded development. Well, that's a, that's an excellent point there. And I do think there's a lot of people that get into this and they uh, just assume, well, whatever the way this is written, uh, the government will have access to everything. And it could happen exactly like you said, where the government could decide, you know what, we're going to package this and we're going to give it to all 4 million users in the DOD or whatever it is, right? Instead of, oh, well, we're going to pay for this development and then you can still sell licenses or whatever it may be uh, because that you could wind up winning a $1, 2 $3 million contract that ultimately puts your company out of business if you don't focus on how are you going to then sell it to the government later down the road. I mean, that, that's how ours was. We actually had a licensing software per seat per year and, uh, you know, they did not bypass that licensing because they were only paying for small enhancements to the software. They weren't paying for the software as a whole or the server side or any of that type of thing. And so we were still able to sell to the government after they paid for this this research and design phase. So uh, it's a really important points there. I like the concept of intermingling the code so it's not really separable. You can't just can't just break up the executable because if you didn't have, like you said, line two thousand and something through two thousand whatever, code's not going to work, right? So hey. it, it's, it's just not going to work. And we paid for that ourselves, and so you paid for the other pieces. But no, really, really good stuff. So, any final thoughts you have for our listeners? I think this has all been really good stuff. I'm just wondering if, if there's any final thoughts for them. Um. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just encourage if you're a small business and you've got an idea, uh, you know, it's it's obviously better to be in a situation where you're working on ideas with the technical point of contact. But if you're not, I mean, if you're just getting started, you've got to get started. And so that may mean writing a lot of proposals and you may not win very many of them, but, you know, you got to get started somehow. And that's that's exactly how I got started with my first company is I wrote probably 20 proposals before I won the first one. And then after I won that first contract, it got easier and easier and easier. Um, so I, I guess I would encourage folks, don't give up. Don't, you know, don't think that you got to find that point of contact and wait 18 months before the solicitation hits the street. Um, you you got to get started. And so, and it, it really is a great program. Um, you know, it's a, it's a beneficial to the government. It's beneficial to you as a small business owner. And uh, there's some, you know, administrative type headaches with the, uh, the audit agencies and things like that. But overall, it's, it was an extremely beneficial program for our company. Yeah, no, that's great advice. And I like how you shared 
that you know you probably wrote 20 before you won the first one and then it just got easier just from a time perspective how long do you think it took for you to write those first 20 proposals oh gosh um i mean how, how many years were you in the business or months in the in the business of writing that going after it i mean that that was over about 18 months okay. um and but fortunately, in my previous job, I had met a number of contacts in the government, and so it accelerated some of the uh, the proposals that I won uh, later on. But uh, yeah, you know, and, and part of that also was just kind of inexperience. I was I was writing proposals for things that were kind of in my wheelhouse, but not completely, and uh, that's also part of the reason that I wasn't wasn't doing so hot on the first several that I submitted. Gotcha. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I, we often tell people for the average person new to government contracting, and you can you can tell us if, if you agree with this, Matt, the average person is brand new to government contract. It's it's going to take you three to five years to win your first contract, depending on, again, you know how much you know, what your contacts are, stuff like that. And you're already talking 18 months in, you know, with with those proposals. I mean, is that a relatively accurate number, three to five years to win your first contract? Yeah, I th I think so. Um, you know, if like I said in my previous jobs, I had made those contacts with government customers, and if I wouldn't have had those, I probably wouldn't have won that first contract in in the first eighteen months. So yeah, three to five years, I think that's very reasonable. Yeah, and that I think it's really hard to get discouraged, or not really hard. I think it's really easy to get discouraged. It's really hard to keep going when it takes that long to figure out the system you know that that's probably wouldn't wouldn't you say it's you, the daily struggle of do we continue to be a government contractor or do we just get out of this business and go do something else i mean is that kind of a daily struggle sometimes oh yeah for sure and you know the, the way that that i did it especially for the first couple of years is that i had uh consulting projects and that's how i paid the bills and then i would spend my nights and weekends uh, writing SBIR proposals and other types of proposals. Um, so yeah, I mean, if 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 you just jump into it and think you're going to win a contract in the first year, eh, it's probably not going to work out like that. Uh, and you're going to need some some source of income to be paying the bills while you're trying to win those contracts. Yeah, no, good, really good advice. I really appreciate all of it. Thanks for coming on today. I think this has all been really good for our listeners. I think they all, all got a lot out of it. And maybe we'll have you come back on at some point and talk about how you actually position the company for sale. Because I think you kind of lived the dream for a lot of people. You you went, you went, built the company, you ran it for a while, and then you you got into this acquisition mode where you're able to sell it off and, and make some money and walk away. And that that's something that a lot of people at least a lot of our listeners really have that vision in their mind of they're going to build it and sell it someday. So maybe we'll, we'll have you back on and we can talk about that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Awesome. Well, I, I also want to take a quick minute here to thank our listeners for joining us today on this episode. Remember you can find every episode on iTunes. Just look for game changers for government contractors and subscribe to the feed to make sure you get every episode. And last but not least, please visit our sponsor for today's episode, the federal access program at federal-access.com. Join any of the paid membership levels today and get a free copy of the government sales manual. And be sure to tune in next time for lessons from our experts on how you can win more government contracts. Thanks for listening to Game Changers for Government Contractors. 
For a full list of episodes and other resources, be sure and check us out on the web at www.rsmfederal.com slash gamechangers. Thank you.